Open your Bibles, please, to Genesis chapter 3. The title of today's message is Satan, Theodicy, and the Problem of Evil. Satan, Theodicy, and the Problem of Evil. Genesis chapter 3, and let us read together verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and that you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden and in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out to the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man. And he placed the cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Genesis chapter 3, God's holy word. This is commonly known as the fall of man. Last week, the message was titled, The Fall of an Angel. Because it is the fall of an angel that precedes the fall of man. Last time we considered the shock that it is that a serpent is found in the Garden of Eden. And not just any serpent, a Satan-indwelt serpent. Satan himself is in the serpent in the Garden of Eden. And Satan at this point is no longer an angel created good during the six-day creation and pronounced very good on that final day. Satan now is fallen. He is no longer Lucifer. He is the devil. He is the enemy of God. He is the enemy of mankind, for mankind is created in the image of God for the glory of God. And soon after Adam and Eve were created, the serpent comes to the garden to tempt them, to defy God, to tempt them, to disobey God, to tempt them with that fateful fruit. We talked last time about how this should shock us. This should grip us. 
and move us. We should not read lightly over Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. This whole book, God's book, God's revelation of himself began within the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. It's glorious. God, holy, holy, holy. God, everlasting to everlasting. God, this eternal triune being, created the heavens and the earth for the honor of his name. God created mankind, Genesis 1, 26 and verse 27, in his image, saying, let us make man in our image. And day by day, he continued his creative work until he finally pronounced it all very good. That's how chapter 2 closes. And chapter 3 opens with evil. Chapter 3 opens with a serpent in the garden interrupting God's very good creation. Where did this evil come from? All too often, we read through the Bible without thinking about what we're reading. And of all the places we need to think, it's here. Where did this evil come from? How did this happen? What has occurred here between Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3 that has resulted in the serpent in the garden and evil with him? Last time we introduced the serpent. We introduced Lucifer, the fallen angel, the devil, the great dragon of old, Satan. And we looked at his names throughout Holy Scripture and did a study of his being and the evil thereof, we found 26 names of the devil, the final one being Lucifer. We saved his angelic name, the name that we believe to be his proper name, before he fell for last. And then we considered briefly how was he created, when was he created, and finally we closed with James 1, 13 through 15, how could an angel fall into sin and become the devil? And reading once again, James 1, 13 through 15, it says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire is conceived, he gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth Death. And that was our final word last week on how it is that God's perfect creation, that God's very good creation is interrupted by the serpent in the garden, by Satan in the serpent in the garden, by evil in Satan in the serpent in the garden. James 1.13, let no one, even the devil, Say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil. He who is holy, holy, holy cannot be tempted by evil. Thus he cannot tempt men with evil. Nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Now the logical problem there is, and the theological problem with it, how is it that a creature created very good, i.e. without sin, without evil, was able to do evil. And I cannot logically answer that question. Only God knows how it is he created Satan and Adam and Eve, like him, as creatures with no innate nature of evil, with no sin nature, who are capable of choosing to sin. All we can do is see the truth of the Scripture and say yes and amen to it. There are many things about God and about the history of God's working with mankind that I can't fully comprehend. We have already discussed the Trinity, have we not? I can't fully comprehend how God is one and yet three, and yet I believe it. Why? Because it's clear. I can't fully comprehend logically how God created everything very good, and yet chapter 3 opens with an evil 
Satan indwelling the serpent in the garden to tempt Eve and Adam with her to sin against God, bringing about the fall of mankind that you and I still suffer from to this day. But what I can do is tell you what God's Word says about it. All the inner workings are not revealed to us, but much is. And we can rejoice in the reality that God's wisdom is higher than our wisdom and ways are higher than our ways. An excellent article titled God's Devil from Legionnaire Ministries may help us out. It opens with a quote of First Chronicles 21, verse 1. Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. Dualism, that philosophical idea that says good and evil are two equal and eternal forces, is shown to be false in the word of God in its very first verse. When the Bible says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, the words of the heavens and the earth are a synonym for all things. In the beginning, God created all things. This includes the devil. Although he is very powerful, Satan is ultimately a finite creature who is by no means a match for our Lord. Though he created the devil, God is not in any way culpable for evil. Like everything else, Satan was originally very good. And how Satan could fall when there was no evil present in creation is a great mystery. Still, we know our Creator cannot be tempted with evil, nor can he ever tempt anyone, James 1.13. That Satan is a creature means he is subject to the Lord who uses him to fulfill his good purposes. In the final analysis, the devil is God's devil, to summarize Martin Luther, and never operates outside of the Lord's decree. This truth can be seen when we compare today's passage with 2 Samuel 24. So a comparison of 2 Samuel 24 with 1 Chronicles 21. Applying material from the books of Samuel to the Israelites after the Babylonian exile, the chronicler tells us Satan incited David to take a census of Israel. This is found in 1 Chronicles 21.1. Even though 2 Samuel 24.1 says God moved David on that occasion. This is no contradiction. It illustrates the doctrine of providence. Since God is sovereign over all, everything that happens is grounded in his plan. David commanded a census because the Lord ultimately planned that he do so, but Satan was used as the secondary cause to incite David. God ordained David's sin, but he is not to blame for the temptation, for Satan did the tempting. In this case, we might say the Lord allowed Satan to tempt David in order to clarify the point that God does not stand behind evil deeds in the same way that he does behind goodness. But make no mistake, John Calvin tells us, God's decree of evil is not bare permission as if God sat in a watchtower awaiting chance events and his judgments thus depended upon human will. That God rules over Satan without himself being guilty of sin is a hard truth, but it's also a comforting truth. It tells us that What we suffer from the devil is demons, and all evil is not purposelessness, but will lead to our good and God's glory. God is much greater than we are, so he is able to do things that we could never do, such as being sovereign over the devil without being guilty of the devil's evil. Knowledge of this truth should not only move us to glorify the Lord, but also to be confident that every tragedy we meet will serve a good purpose when all is said and done. If you're going through a difficult time, know that God is using it for your good, even if you cannot yet see how. Satan, the odyssey, and the problem of evil, that's what we run into in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. We run into Satan. We run into the problem of evil, and we have a theodicy. Jonathan Edwards on the problem of evil or theodicy said this, God's awful majesty, his authority and dreadful greatness, justice and holiness 
would not shine forth as the other parts of divine glory do, and also the glory of His goodness, love, and holiness would be faint without them. Nay, they could scarcely shine forth at all. There would be no manifestation of God's grace or true goodness if there was no sin to be pardoned, no misery to be saved from, no matter how much happiness He might bestow, His goodness would not be nearly as highly prized and admired, and the sense of His goodness heightened. So evil is necessary if the glory of God is to be perfectly and completely displayed. Jonathan Edwards. R.C. Sproul writes this in an article he titled, The Mystery of Iniquity. He says, it has been called the Achilles heel of the Christian faith. Of course, I'm referring to the classical problem of the existence of evil. Philosophers such as Jonathan Stuart Mill have argued that the existence of evil demonstrates that God is either not omnipotent or not good and loving. The reasoning being that if evil exists apart from the sovereign power of God, then by resistless logic, God cannot be deemed omnipotent. On the other hand, if God does have the power to prevent evil but fails to do it, then this would reflect upon his character, indicating that he is neither good nor loving. Because of the persistence of this problem, the church has seen countless attempts of what is called theodicy. The term theodicy involves the combining of two Greek words, the word for God, theos, and the word for justification, dikaios. Hence, a theodicy is an attempt to justify God for the existence of evil. What is theodicy? An attempt to justify God for the existence of evil or an apologetic defense of God in light of the existence of evil. Such theodicies have covered the gauntlet between a simple explanation that evil comes as a direct result of human free will or to more complex philosophical attempts. To this date, says R.C. Sproul, I've yet to find a satisfying explanation for what theologians call the mystery of iniquity. Please don't send me letters giving your explanations, usually focusing on some dimension of human free will. I'm afraid that many people fail to feel the serious weight of this burden of explanation. The simple presence of free will is not enough to explain the origin of evil, inasmuch as we still must ask how a good being would be inclined freely to choose evil. The inclination for the will to act in an immoral manner is already a signal of sin. In contemporary days, this problem has been resolved by simply denying both evil and good. And that's not a good resolution. Such a problem, however, faces enormous difficulties, particularly when one suffers at the hands of someone who inflicts evil upon them. It is easy for us to deny the existence of evil until we ourselves are victims of someone's wicked action. Since God is both omnipotent and good we must conclude that in his omnipotence and goodness, there must be a place for the existence of evil. We know that God himself never does that which is evil. Nevertheless, he also ordains whatsoever comes to pass. Though he does not do evil and does not create evil, he does ordain that evil exists. If it does exist, and if God is sovereign, then obviously he must have been able to prevent its existence. If he allowed evil to enter into his universe, it could only be by his sovereign decision. Since his sovereign decisions always follow the perfection of his being, we must conclude that his decision to allow evil to exist is a good decision. One thing we know for sure is that evil does exist. If nowhere else, in us and in our behavior, we know that the force of evil is extraordinary and brings great pain and suffering into the world. We also know that God is sovereign over it, and in his sovereignty will not allow evil to have the last word. Evil always and ever serves the ultimate best interest of God himself. It is God in his goodness and in his sovereignty who has ordained the final conquest over evil and its riddance from the universe. In this redemption, we find our rest and our joy. And until that time, we live in a fallen world, end quote. On a personal and practical level, when faced with evil and its terrible consequences, we often and rightly turn to Romans eight twenty-eight. If you ever get lost in your contemplation of theodicy or the problem of evil, I urge you to go back to Romans eight twenty-eight and hold fast. Romans eight twenty-eight. 
And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. And so, in the midst of any conversation of evil, in the midst of your personal dealings with evil and personal sufferings due to an evil world and evil doings in this world, hold fast to Romans 8.28. We know. There are many things we don't know. Here's what we, who are in Christ Jesus, we who were born again from above, we who have been loved by God, sought by God, bought by God through the highest price, the blood of Jesus Christ, and brought by God into a redemptive relationship, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. There are evil things that occurred in your life, but God in His sovereignty, has and will work those things for your good. That we know. But Romans 8.28 is often misapplied. It's often applied to non-believers. We don't know that all things are working for the good of non-believers. We don't know that, for it does not say that. It says that we know all things are working for good for those who are the called those who are the predestined, those who are elect, those who are the chosen, those who love God and are the called according to His purpose. And so let us rejoice in God's love for His saints and that God ordains all things that come to pass, even the evil things that come to pass in our experience, in our lives, for our ultimate good. We know this, and thus we trust our loving Father who has put His love on display in the person of Jesus Christ at the cross on Golgotha. And we do not doubt the Lord's love. We do not doubt the perfection of His love unto us. We rejoice in His love. And we trust that we will be perfected through whatever comes to pass in our lives. In an article by Dr. Joseph Nally, titled, What is Theodicy? He says this, Theodicy is a term Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz coined from the Greek words theos, meaning God, and diaxune, meaning righteous. It is a branch of philosophy that deals with the issue of evil in the light of the sovereignty of God. If God is holy, just, and good, which he is, then how could evil possibly exist? The pagan Greek philosopher Epicurus puts the question slash answer like this. Is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is not omnipotent. Is he able but not willing? Then he is malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Then whence cometh evil? Is he neither able nor willing? Then why call him God? What is curious about Epicurus' riddle is that he never defines evil. In addition, he assumes the existence of God as a personal being that interacts to some extent with his creation before going on to try to disprove that he doesn't exist. You can't have it both ways. Of course, in my experience, all atheists use similar self-defeating arguments. An illustration may help. Cornelius Van Til was once traveling on a train when he noticed a father with his child sitting on his lap. Apparently, the father asked his child to do something, and the child slapped the father's face. What is the application? The child's behavior illustrates unbelievers who live in God's world and who are supported by God's common grace. They sit, as it were, on God's lap. And it is precisely because they sit on God's lap that they are able to deliver a slap. Thus, unbelievers who display their own ingratitude by assault on God's existence are only able to do so as they are supported by God himself. So their denial of God is his very affirmation. Atheism does not invalidate theism, but rather proves it, because atheism is only possible given the premise of theism. As the atheist Nikita Khrushchev once described the Soviet Union, quote, in Russia, thank God, there is no God. What is evil? Dr. Nally asks. One dictionary describes evil as, quote, profound immorality, wickedness, and depravity. The 
Brown Driver Briggs Hebrew Lexicon defines the Hebrew word ra as meaning bad or evil. Third defines the Greek adjective kakos to refer to things that are troublesome or wicked. Scripture reveals God's relationship to evil in Psalm 5-4 saying, quote, You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. And James 1, 13-14, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Clearly God is not the author of evil. The Bible teaches that God is totally sovereign, and that he authored good and ordained evil to display his own glory. Proverbs 16, verse 4 says, quote, The Lord works out everything for his own ends, even the wicked for a day of disaster. Lamentations 3.38 says, Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Amos 3.6 states, Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Isaiah 45.7 says, I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. God is sovereign over good and evil. That is the message of the Bible. That is the God of the Bible. There is no other God to craft another so-called Christian God who is not sovereign over evil demands that you do great damage to the text of Holy Scripture. Back to Dr. Nally's article. He quotes the Westminster Confession saying, The almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness of God so far manifest themselves in His providence that it extendeth itself even to the first fall and of all other sins of angels and men, and that not by bare permission, but such as hath joined with it a most wise and powerful bounding and otherwise ordering and governing of them in a manifold dispensation to His own holy ends. Yet so as the sinfulness thereof proceedeth only from the creature and not from God, who being most holy and righteous, neither is nor can be the author or prover of sin. While not being the author of sin, evil, etc., Dr. Nally continues, God ordained the use of evil from the very beginning. In Genesis, we observe, and he references Genesis 3. Point one, God not only made it a possibility that Adam could sin. He not only knew, two, that Adam would sin, but he also ordained, three, that Adam would sin. And I would back up, if I was Dr. Nally, to Satan and the serpent that led Eve and then Adam with her into sin. Usually, when discussing theodicy or the problem of evil, men start with Adam. Men, because we're, we're kind of self-centered, let's be honest. Men start with men. We start with mankind. But we must back up to Satan himself and the evil that was in Satan when he came into the garden within that serpent. We are absolutely sure, says Dr. Nally, of these facts as God ordained them for his own, for his very own son to die before the foundation of the world. This reveals that God was anticipating and, and ordained the existence of evil. The word of God says Jesus was slain from the foundation of the world. Evil did not interrupt God's creation by chance. It was not outside of his Control. Evil is not unforeseen. And then God reacts and says, oh, I see. This is terrible. What am I going to do? Oh, I'll send my son to die as a substitutionary atonement. No, God does not react. God is sovereign over all that comes to pass. Ephesians 1.11, he works all things according to the counsel of his will. This reveals that God was anticipating and ordained the existence of evil, ordaining that the fall would take place, God also chose his people out of the world before its very foundation. This reveals that God understood the extent of sin and ordained before time to save his people. The devil, a fallen angel, not understanding God's marvelous redemptive plan of God's people, was fooled by the cross. This was part, of the, part and parcel of God's strategic plan to ultimately destroy the works of the devil. Why does Dr. Nally say the devil was fooled? 
Because while the devil is wise for evil, he played the fool, did he not, when he entered into Judas and laid that fateful kiss upon the Lord Jesus' cheek that sent him to the cross in order that the serpent's head might be crushed. Oh, yes. Dr. Nally continues, What could God have possibly been thinking? Why use evil? What was his purpose? Because God's people could not know the absolute fullness of his love, his very own nature, unless Jesus died for his people. As John wrote, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends, John 15, 13. So one purpose in God ordaining sin's very existence is to reveal the fullness of his glorious love to his people. The death of Christ could not have happened without the entrance of sin into the world. So why is there evil in the world? There is evil in the world because an omnipotent, sovereign, holy, living, and loving God ordained it to suit His divine purpose. What is that divine purpose? Redeeming for Himself a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, His own special people that may proclaim the praises of Him who called us out of darkness and into His marvelous light. 1 Peter 2.9 These are some of the mysterious, marvelous, and wondrous works of the God that loves His chosen people. These are some of the truths of Scripture that we can see and know and understand and hold fast to while not being able to answer necessarily the specific question, how is it that a very good Lucifer became Satan? How is it that a very good Adam and Eve were tempted by Satan to fall into sin. Let us further search the scriptures together to establish the biblical theodicy, the biblical defense of God's righteousness in light of God's sovereignty over evil. We've already mentioned Ephesians 1, 11 and 12. In him also we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of His glory. What do we see there? We see that God works all things according to the counsel of His will, but the particular thing He's working according to the counsel of His will in Ephesians 1, 11, and 12 is predestination. He has predestined some men and women, not due to anything within themselves, But according to God's own purpose, he has predestined some unto redemption, unto salvation, unto repentance and faith in Christ. He has predestined them to become children of God. He who works all things according to his will works this thing, this thing called salvation. In order that we, says verse 12, who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. The praise of his glory. Why did God create anything? Why did God create everything? For his glory in the drama of redemption. And he's working all things to that end. And that is the highest end. That is the highest goal. That is the greatest good, the glory of God. Let us search the scriptures to establish our biblical theodicy. Isaiah Chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. You may not have time to turn to all these. I'm going to need to move somewhat fast. But Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 5, tells us that God is absolutely holy and mankind is utterly unholy. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, says Isaiah. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And so we, on the pages of Holy Revelation, see the glory of God in heaven sitting upon His throne, the train of His robe filling the temple. We see the seraphim gathered around the throne crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the angels 
cry out day and night. This praise, this worship, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. They add to it, the whole earth is full of his glory. That's what it's about. The whole earth is full of his glory. And so the holy angels are in heaven declaring God's holiness thrice over continually, day and night. And adding to it that the whole earth is full of his glory. The whole earth and all that's in it. The whole earth and mankind on it. The whole earth and sin in mankind on it. All works for the glory of God. The holy angels worship God in the throne room of God on this premise, on this foundation. That's what we see when we're invited into that throne room through the eyes of Isaiah. Isaiah continues, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And this is the proper starting place for our theodicy. The holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. Not just intellectually, not just seeing it on the page, not just picturing it in our mind, but feeling it in our hearts. God is holy and we are not. We are abased before him. We cry out with Isaiah, Woe is me, for I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Now, mind you, Isaiah's reflection about his own sinfulness and mankind's universal sinfulness is not at odds with the angel's worshipful declaration. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Mankind's sin and Satan's sin before mankind does not diminish the holiness of God in any way, shape, or form. The whole earth is yet full of God's holy glory. This is the proper starting place for our theodicy. Proverbs 1, seven adds this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. We come into the presence of God, holy, 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 and we are suddenly conscious of our unholiness. And we don't turn as unholy creatures against God and say, You made me thus. Therefore, you're not holy. Oh, no. The right response is a response of abasement, a response of brokenness to cry out, I am undone. It's a response of fear. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. Those who make the atheist argument, not just denying his existence, but declaring that the God of the Bible can't exist because He either cannot be sovereign, and the Bible clearly says he is sovereign, or he cannot be good, and the Bible clearly says he is good, because there is evil. That's the atheist argument. And by the way, it's not an astute argument. How do I know that? Because I once made the same argument. When I was 13 years old, I wrote what I felt was a very, very wise atheist manifesto declaring myself to no longer believe in God based on the very premise that every atheist that's come before me has built his or her manifesto. God cannot exist because there is sin in the world and the God of the Bible is sovereign and the God of the Bible is said to be good and sin in the world is not good. That's a basic argument not a high and lofty argument of vast intellect. It's a low argument born out of the heart of a fool because fools despise wisdom instruction. And the fool says in his heart, there is no God, Psalm 14.1. And I was once such a fool. God is the only and eternal, non-arbitrary standard for just, for justice, for right, for righteousness, for good and goodness. What ground did I have as a 13-year-old atheist to point my wicked finger toward heaven and say God is not good because there is evil in this world and evil is not good? 
Therefore, the God of the Bible, who is declared to be good and holy, cannot exist because there is evil in the world. As an atheist, what ground do I stand on to make that assault upon God? I stand on no ground at all. Because what standard of good do I have as an atheist? What standard of right or just or holy or even evil? What judgments can I make as an atheist? What is the standard of the atheist? It's ever-changing, is it not? Have you not read the pages of history? Have you not seen how men in one culture justify this deed or thought is good, and in another culture they condemn it? It's arbitrary. Do you not see in your own family how one family member will say this is good and fine, and another family member will say this is not? Certainly you see it in the workplace. What do we need? We need a standard of goodness, and God is the only standard. Outside of God, it's all arbitrary. Outside of God, it's all personal or societal collective opinion. And so whatever accusations we would want to bring against God, we have no foundation to bring them, nothing to stand upon to point our wicked finger up to heaven. God is the only and eternal, non-arbitrary standard for just, justice, right, righteousness, good, and goodness. There's no standard or definition or authority on what is just or unjust outside of God. As Psalm 7, 11 says, God is a just judge. God is absolutely just. God in his nature is absolutely just. He alone is a just judge. And without him, you can make no right judgments. If you happen to make right judgments, you make them because you are imago Dei. You're in the image of God. And so God has written upon your conscience His law, although it's marred, although we can sear our conscience and some work very hard at it. We do no right and wrong. We do no good and evil. And yet we do evil. But when we deny our Creator, we deny any path to justifying our claim that something is evil and another thing is good. God is absolutely just. He is a just judge. Hold fast to that. Psalm 711. You can memorize it right now. Are you ready? Five words. You can do this. God is a just judge. Psalm 711. You've got it. You've got it. That alone is is a great theodicy. It's a great defense of God's righteousness in a world in which evil exists, both in demons and men. God is a just judge. Without God, the just judge, you have no ability to make any judgments against men, demons, and certainly not against God. God is a just judge. In Job 42, verses 2 through 6, we see God's absolutely sovereign and man is utterly unholy. Job 42, 2 through 6, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you, says Job. You asked, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said I will question you and you shall answer me. I have heard you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Much like the throne room of God put on display in Isaiah chapter 6, here we have God dealing directly with Job in Job 42 and Job's final response, I know that you can do everything. You are absolutely sovereign. That no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. In the midst of Job's suffering at the hands of evil men, and you could say on one level, evil events. We call them acts of God, right? And some insurance policies still, when something terrible happens, homes are burned down, for instance. Because ultimately, God is sovereign over all things. 
And so if a hurricane comes, a tornado comes, a flood comes, or a fire comes, we used to, at least, in insurance policies, call it an act of God. We recognize that reality. And on the ultimate level, that's what it is. God is sovereign over it. But also we know that that's the result of a fallen world. That's the result of sin. That's the result of evil in the world. And so Job suffered evil at the hands of men and nature, And he here says, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, past tense, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. This is the proper starting place for theodicy. When we see God, we don't abhor God. When we see God, we don't judge God. When we truly see God. We abhor ourself and our sin, and we know that we stand rightly judged, and we join God, holy, 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 the only just one, against self. We join God against self, and as Isaiah put on display, all of mankind. I'm a man of unclean lips amongst a people of unclean lips. This is the right starting place. For theodicy, in the presence of God, we don't condemn God, we abhor self with God, we abhor our sin with God, and by the grace of God, we repent in dust and ashes. Daniel 4.35 declares God's absolute sovereignty. It says, all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? Job 23.13 declares God's absolute sovereignty, saying he is unique and who can make him change and whatever his soul desires, that he does. Psalm 33 Verses 8 through 11 declares God's absolute sovereignty over all things, saying, Let all the earth fear the Lord, and let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. For He spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing, and He makes the plans of the peoples of no effect. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of His heart to all generations. Hear me, there's no plan B. There's only an always for God plan A. His will is done. Is that not what we pray? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Oh, that we would align ourselves fully with that prayer and the reality of God's sovereignty over everything. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. God is absolutely sovereign. Psalm 115, verse 3, But our God is in heaven. He does whatever He pleases. And whatever He pleases is right. Whatever He pleases is good. Whatever He pleases is holy. And whatever He pleases is wise is wise and we stand on no ground what ground would we stand on to judge it as unwise psalm 135 6 through 10 our god the god is absolutely sovereign Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. In heaven and in earth, in the seas and all the deep places, He causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain. He brings the wind out of His treasuries. He destroyed the firstborn of Egypt, both man and beast. He sent signs and wonders into the midst of you, O Egypt, upon Pharaoh and all his servants. He defeated many nations and slew mighty kings. And He is utterly unashamed. You are not God's PR man or PR woman. You're not working on God's behalf that he might have a good image. Your job, my job, is to declare the one true God and call all men, all women to bend their knee before him. The beginning of wisdom is not to justify God in light of the existence of evil. We don't show up and say, God's really not that bad. I know there's evil in the world and you probably have suffered due to it, but God's really not that bad. You should try him out. 
Now we show up and say God is holy and he is just and he's made a place for sinners called hell and you're a sinner before him and he is omnipotent. You will not escape his just wrath unless you repent. He's made one way of escape and it's through repentance and faith in his son, Jesus Christ. We show up with that message that they might learn the beginning of wisdom, the fear of God, come to repentance and faith in Christ and escape the wrath to come. We don't show up as his PR men and women. You haven't been hired for that. You're not on the PR crew. Yeah, I'm in public relations for Jesus, right? That's synonymous with I'm a pastor, right? No, not at all. No, I'm a messenger. I preach the word, whether in season or out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort. That's what I do. I'm not a PR man. Not at all. God destroyed the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and beast, the firstborn. The children and those beasts, right? I don't know what we're more bothered by in today's world. He destroyed the firstborn of Egypt, both man and beast. He sent signs and wonders into the midst of you, O Egypt. What signs and wonders? Ten plagues. He defeated many nations and slew mighty kings. Mighty kings, like that one king, remember? That one king that God's prophet hacked to pieces, Samuel hacked him to pieces. Do you know the NIV won't even translate it? That's why you should never use it. It's a manifestation of their judgment of God. The NIV translation board sat in judgment of God. They would not translate the literal text that said Samuel hacked Agag to pieces. They didn't allow God to say that. Remember, that's the inspired, inerrant, preserved word of God. But they were God's PR men. And so they did their job as God's PR men, and they didn't translate it. They changed it to say, and he put Agag to death. He didn't put him to death. He hacked him to pieces with a holy zeal. We are not trying to give a positive, upbeat caricature of God to the world. We are proclaiming the one true God to rebel mankind and calling them to repentance and faith, lest they perish. Isaiah 46, verse 9, For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. Hear me. It's not, you know, God, A, B, C, or D, or E, all the above. Choose one. There is one God, and He is the God of Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, who is also the God of Genesis 3-1, who allowed evil to come into Satan and allowed evil Satan to come into the serpent, and allowed the serpent to come talk to Eve, and allowed Eve to be tempted, and allowed Eve to turn to Adam, to be tempted with her, to lead mankind into sin, so that you and I would be born under the curse of sin and death, so that Christ should come and rescue us for the eternal glory of God, and for your eternal blessing. I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning... And from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand. I will do all my pleasure, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man who executes my counsel from a far country. Indeed, I have spoken it. I will bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. Those are the words of the true God, the all-sovereign God. Proverbs twenty-one twenty-eight says, there is no wisdom or understanding or counsel against the Lord. Not only is there no Definition of justice or righteousness or evil or good apart from God. There's no wisdom. There's no understanding. There's no counsel apart from God. Lamentations chapter 3 verse 37 and 38 says, Who is he who speaks and it comes to pass when the Lord has not commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that woe and well-being proceed That's the New King James Version. The NAS says, Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? The ESV says, Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? And the implied answer is obviously yes. That God has ordained both good and evil while not authoring evil. Biblical references and explanations of God's absolute sovereign rule over everything that comes to pass aren't limited to generic declarations or all positive, 
all blessings, all the time declarations. God does not flinch at declaring his sovereignty over all types of hardship, suffering, evil men, evil spirits, or demons, and their evil deeds. He does not flinch. God is not worried, not not in the slightest. Hear me. God is not even slightly remotely worried about man judging him, about our assessment of God's goodness. That's a madness, the madness of sin. In Exodus 4, verse 11, it says, So the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth, or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seen, or the blind? Have not I the Lord? God is sovereign over the mute, the deaf, and the blind. What is the alternative? Chance? That people are mute, deaf, or blind by chance? They're, they're born with what we call a congenital defects or maladies or mishaps by chance? Do you prefer to live in a chance universe? It really doesn't matter. We don't get what we prefer. There's just the universe of Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The only universe. And it's ruled by God. In Psalm 105.14, we see that God sends famine. Moreover, he called for a famine in the land. He destroyed all the provision of bread. In 2 Kings 17.25, we see that God sends lions. They did not fear the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. In 1 Kings 22.19-23, we see that God sends lying spirits. Literally, lying demons. In Matthew 24, 23-27, the Lord Jesus warns us of lying false Christ and false prophets full of false spirits, demons, who would what? Deceive, if possible, even the elect. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 5-12, through the Apostle Paul warned us of the coming of the lying lawless one and a strong delusion that would come with him, and God sends it. Verse 9, it says, The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. It's a righteous judgment of God to send lying spirits, to send demons with strong delusions. It's a righteous judgment of God to unleash Satan on mankind in an unprecedented manner. And that's coming. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 6-8, through 8, we see God is absolutely sovereign over life and death. It says the Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and He brings up. In Amos 3, verse 6, we see that God is sovereign over terrorist attacks, invading armies, and all calamity. It says, if a trumpet is blown in a city, will not the people be afraid? If there is calamity in a city, will not the Lord have done it? This is a warning trumpet. It's a watcher on a wall, warning that the enemy has come. They've come to destroy us. If there is calamity in a city, will not the Lord have done it? Hear me, God is sovereign over Portland, over Oregon, over Washington, over California, over these United States of America, all the earth and all the cosmos, and what we see in our nation and in our state and in our city, what we see is calamity, and the Lord has done it. It is a judgment. Isaiah 14, verses 24 through 27 Again, says God is sovereign over terrorist attacks, invading armies, and all calamity. The Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely, as I have thought, so it shall come to pass. As I have purposed, so it shall stand. And he speaks of bringing Assyria as a judgment. And then verse 27, The Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? No one. No one. For God is absolutely holy, and utterly sovereign. Oh, saints, there's no alternative. There is no A, B, C, D, E option. There is the one heavens and one earth spoken of in Genesis chapter 1, created by the one true God who is sovereign over everything, including the Satan in the serpent, in the garden, who introduces evil to Adam and Eve. 
And God is working it all for His glory, which is the highest good. And He's working it all for the good of those who love Him, who are the called according to His purpose. And there we stand as God's messengers, boldly declaring His message, His revelation, not God's public relations specialists. Putting a positive spin on the character and nature of God. And all of God's saints said, Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your holy revelation. We thank you for your unflinching declaration of your glory, of your creative act, of your sovereignty over all, of your wisdom and your power, Lord. May we be gladly subject to you. May we, Lord, abhor ourselves as we hear our elder brother Job crying out. May we, Father, say indeed that we are undone as our elder brother Isaiah cried out. May we, Lord, never rise up against you. May we never be so foolish as to attempt to judge you or your deeds, Lord, but be gladly subject to you and know, Father, that you have set your love upon us and you have put it on display in the person and work of Jesus Christ most gloriously. Grant, Father, faith, grant courage that we would be your messengers, Lord, even as you have unflinchingly declared your glory and your sovereignty over all things, may we unflinchingly declare you to a lost and dying world that desperately needs that revelation. We pray it in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.